0: God will never place any of His children into a situation in which you have to sin. live in a world in which the sin that resides in our heart is seeking opportunity, opportunity to come with us with the strongest force. Now, the scriptures tell us exactly what to do about this. And it's something that Paul says to Timothy in the most spiritual and the holiest manner possible. He simply says, run from it, run from it. If that's your besetting sin, if that's the moment of temptation, flee from it, says Paul. Just simply get out of there. Just don't make the cake. Don't turn on the computer, don't buy the book, don't rent the movie, don't give the opportunity to the sin which will find that moment to be the greatest of all. All right, so the opportunity comes, and the opportunity that comes is this birthday bash, this birthday banquet, verse 22, For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. So here we're introduced to the third character in the story, and the third character is Herodias' daughter. Now, we're never told her name. In fact, none of the gospel writers mention her name. Josephus tells us her name was Salome. So Josephus also writes of the same event, the beheading of John the baptizer, and he records her name as being Salome. Salome, or, or Salome, S-A-L-O-M-E, is a name that only shows up just uh, in one person in the, in the scriptures. At the end of Mark's gospel, chapter 15 and chapter 16, Salome is one of the ladies who tends to the body of Jesus after his crucifixion. So that's the only Salome that we're told of in scripture, but here Josephus tells us that her name was Salome, and she is described as Herod's, Herodias's daughter. So this meant that she was the daughter of Philip. She was Philip's daughter. Philip was her dad. Herodias was her mom. And here she is Herodias' daughter who comes in and dances for the, for the guests and pleases Herod And as we know, the story goes, she pleases him so much that he makes this foolish vow. And the result of the vow was the uh, beheading of John. So the dancing that she comes into the party and dances for them. None of us here in the room really need to use a whole lot of imagination to understand what sort of dancing this was. We're not told the Bible is modest enough to leave that sort of detail out. But we can easily imagine what sort of dance this was. I mean, she's not clogging. She's not doing the hokey pokey like we used to do in, in kindergarten. She's not showing a tap dance routine. We know what sort of dancing this is. This is this is seductive dancing in which she is using body movements to, to produce feelings of lusts and thoughts of lust in those who are watching her. Now, we don't have to just guess at this. We know this because of the research that has been done by those who have researched both the royal parties of the Herodian family, the royal parties of the Romans, 100% of the research is unanimous to tell us that this is what took place. What took place was something very much like what took place way back in Esther chapter 1. If you remember the story of Esther, in Esther chapter 1, King Ahasuerus was having the party. And the party was a full, was a, a party of only men, a stag party like this one. And he called for his wife Vashti. Remember that story? He called for Vashti because she was beautiful to look at. And he wanted her to come in so that all the men in the party could look at her. And she refused to come. And that was the the impetus for the story. So this is the same type of, of gathering, the same type of environment. It was an environment with lots of drinking, lots of partying, lots of uh, who knows what other sort of immorality is taking place. And as we're told, it was a party in which there was only men present. We're told of who was present. We were told that they are the chief leaders of the the leading men of the city, the military rulers and the nobles. All three of those groups of people are males only in this culture. So it's a group of males only. We're also told that Herodias herself, the mother of the daughter, is not there because when The daughter, when Salome wants to ask a question of Herodias, she has to leave to ask the question. So that means that her mom's not there. Here is a daughter that's putting on a show for all the men that that are in the room, and no other women are in the room, including her mother. So who is she putting the show on for? Well, she's putting on the show for Herod and his guests. Remember, Herod is her stepdad. And not only is Herod her stepdad, he is her stepdad, Two generations older than her. So Herod became Tetrarch in 4 BC. Right now we're in the year 28, 29, 30 BC, I mean AD. So Herod is at least in his 60s, maybe more. We don't know about the other men there at the party. We would imagine probably there's some young ones, there's some older, but they're all leading men. Leaders of the city, military leaders, so they're probably mostly on the older side. So we can imagine this is a room full of old men. And this girl, Salome, who comes in. Now, if you've ever seen the artwork, there's so much artwork, particularly medieval artwork, that was painted and sculpted with as Salome uh, being the centerpiece. And all of it is artwork and, and paintings and whatnot that are depicting A licentious environment, a woman of licentiousness, a woman uh, with sexual allure. Now, all every all of the paintings and everything I've seen depict Salome as a fully developed woman, lots of curves, fully developed, lots of sexual appeal, that sort of thing. However, let's notice that the word that Mark uses to describe her. Uh, she came in, and then verse 22, he said to the girl, and then two two more times, we're going to see that same word, the girl. That word, that's actually the word, it's the diminutive form. We've talked about the diminutive recently. It's the diminutive form of the word that we get our proper name Korah from. It's the word coracion. And this word is a word that specifically means a female who is no longer a child, but not of marriageable age. It's the identical word used in chapter 5 to describe Jairus's daughter. And it specifically means a female who is beyond the age of child, but not yet of marrying age. Now, in this culture, marrying age was sometimes as young as 12, 13, 14, something like that. We're told that Jairus's daughter was 12 and she's called this same word. So... We put those together and we're given a picture not of a young woman in the prime of her physical life, not in a woman who has reached her, her physical development. We're talking about someone probably 12 or 13 years of age. Dancing, most likely clothed with minimal clothing or quite often with none with her mother out of the room dancing seductively for a room full of old men, primarily her stepfather who's in his 60s. Folks, we didn't invent this with Jerry Epstein, Roman Polanski. We didn't invent this in the 20th and 21st century. This has been the depth of the human-depraved heart for centuries and centuries and centuries, the disgusting, the morally disgusting practice of old men looking at young teenage girls for the purpose of lusting for their bodies. Do you remember last week how we said, as we started out, that this story is just going to make you go? Oh. This is a morally disgusting story. But the Bible is so real to life, is it not? It is so true to life. And it just looks this square in the face and says, this is what was going on. This is the type of sin that was taking place in that room. The type of sin in which a mother sends her 11 or 12 or 13-year-old daughter into a room of men wearing maybe very little or maybe nothing for the purpose of moving her body in such ways to cause those men to have thoughts that are too shameful for me to even mention. This was the type of family that the Herodian family was. This, this was the upbringing of this poor, pitiable young girl named Salome. Now, this episode that's taking place, one of the things that this shows us, as ugly as this is, one of the things that this shows us is something else about the nature of sin. Have you ever noticed how sin seems to be particularly interested in the downfall of the very young you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed how pointed the temptations to sin are specifically towards those of very, very young age? It's as though the world around us and the sinfulness of man wants most of all to get a hold of young children. To see this, all you have to do is just go a few blocks down the road to the Elkin Public Library and go into the children's section and just start looking through books. It'll take you less than 10 books before you start seeing messaging. And once you, rec- once you learn how to recognize the messaging, you'll see that that messaging is prominent. And there are, I don't have to describe to you all the ways that our society is invested in injecting sinfulness into the very young all of the agendas that take place in public education that are disguised under sexual education and all these different sorts of programs. And they're just a thin veil for the sinful attempt to introduce sin to the younger and the younger and the younger. This is what's happening here. As we have a girl who should be playing with dolls or at most should be helping Learning, or learning how to help her mother and the things that her mother does or whatnot. And instead, she's flaunting her semi-naked or fully naked body in front of a, in a room full of men, one of whom calls himself her father. Lord, help us. It makes you want to just echo the, the call of John the Apostle at the end of the Revelation when he says, Come, Lord, quickly come. Because this, I wish we could say that this was new. Wouldn't it be nice to to at least be able to say, we in the age of technology have invented such sins as this, but we haven't. This has always been the depth of the human heart. This has always been the blackness of the human heart. It's on full display here with this pitiable young girl who came in and danced and danced, apparently so skillfully that she pleased her father, and the other men in the room to such a point that, verse 20, verse 22, and the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So perhaps that's some alcohol talking. Perhaps this is towards the end of the party and the effects of alcohol are beginning to take a prominent effect on his mind and that has loosened his tongue and, and softened up his judgment. Perhaps that's part of it. But there is little doubt that a big part of it was the show that Salome just put on and the effect that that show has had upon Herod and has elicited from him such a response as this, which was precisely the response that Herodias planned on. So he makes this vow, this most foolish of vows. Ask anything you want. I'll give it to you. Up to half my kingdom. So here we see, ironically, Here's the one who would be king, but he cannot. Here's the one who would promise a kingdom, but he has no kingdom to give. Set right against the story of the one who's the true king, who has returned to claim his kingdom, and his authority is so secure and so supreme that he gives his authority to his servants, and they do the same things that he does. So here's the one who would be king. He promises, I'll give you up to half my kingdom, which was just an idiomatic expression of the day. We find it in Esther, we find it in 1 Kings, other places. It was an idiomatic expression. He's not literally saying, I will make you co-ruler with me. It's a way of saying, I want to be as generous to you as I possibly can be. So ask what you will. I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. He makes this most foolish of vows. And this foolishness of this vow presses him into another sin. So one sin exposes him to another sin, which is the fear of man, as we're going to see a little bit later. He's so concerned about what people at the party are going to think of him that he has to keep this foolish vow. So the one sin presses him into another sin. The opposite of grace delivering us from a sin is this. One sin presses him into another sin. He commits the sin of murder as a result of the sin of the fear of man, which is a result of the sin of this foolish vow. So one sin leads to another. We see the progression here. But this foolishness of the vow, Mark's readers would have picked up on this right away. Even being Romans, they were still Christians. And Christians have always had a long history of understanding the holiness, the sacredness of a vow. The Old Testament people of God have, they had a long-standing understanding of how vows and oaths, they viewed them as as Yahweh is the keeper of all vows, and so when we make a vow and we break it, or we make an oath and we break it, then we are disgracing the name of God. We are violating the commandment of taking the Lord's name in vain. So the Old Testament people of God took, taking, took the practice of taking vows very seriously. In fact, what we find in the Old Testament Scriptures is something that happens with great frequency, something that we as Bible students should be careful to recognize and careful to see. Many a student of the Bible, many a person who is a person of God's people have uh, fallen and mistaken their understanding of the Scriptures in this way. And what I mean is we must be careful to differentiate the descriptive from the prescriptive. And many people have studied the Bible failing to understand the difference between the descriptive and the prescriptive. And what I mean by that is that the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, will spend a great deal of time in the descriptive. In other words, describing what God's people have done. Describing some of the things that have happened to God's people and how they've acted. It will also spend a great deal of time prescribing how God's people should act we must be careful to understand the difference because every time the Bible describes what God's people have done, it is by no means prescribing what God's people should do. And if you make that mistake, if you fail to differentiate differentiate the two of those things, that has led to some really wacky theology. But just to take as an example, for example, the fact that the Bible describes Jacob, Israel, the father of Israel, Jacob as having 12 uh, uh, 12 children by four different women, all of whom live under his roof. The fact that the Bible describes that does not in any way mean that the Bible is prescribing that because all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, God said, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, singular. So God has prescribed one way. God's people are acting another way that's contrary. Nevertheless, the Bible still describes that's what's happening. So oftentimes the Scriptures will describe God's people taking foolish vows. And here's the point that I'm driving at. Sinfully keeping foolish or sinful vows. You've seen this happen in the Old Testament Scriptures many times. Think, for example, of Joshua chapter 9. Remember in the story of Joshua where God has told His people, do not make any covenants with the people of the land. And then there's these Gibeonites. Remember the story? The Gibeonites, they see that the Israelites are defeating everybody in sight. And so they disguise themselves. They get these old worn out wineskins and these worn out shoes and everything, old moldy bread, and they make the short journey over. And they say, "Whoo, we came from a long way away because we heard about you and we, we want to come and meet you and make a covenant with you. So make a covenant with you, with us, because we live so far away. So we're told that they don't consult God and being fooled by their trickery, they make a covenant with them. What do they then do after learning that they just live just around the corner? They keep the covenant because they see it as sinful to break that covenant. Or likewise, probably the saddest story of, of such a type in the Bible was the story of Jephthah. Remember Jephthah in Judges chapter 11? Jephthah was sort of an outsider. He was a mercenary. And the Israelites come and they hire Jephthah to lead their army and to defeat their enemies. And so Jephthah says, okay, I'll do this. And he makes this vow to God. He's going to go up and fight the Ammonites. And he says to God, God, if you give the Ammonites into my hand, when I come home victoriously, the first thing out of my door, I will sacrifice to you. And then Jephthah comes home thinking probably it's going to be his dog or something that runs out to meet him or his pet pig or whatever. Well, he's a Jew. He wouldn't have a pet pig. But his pet something would come out and meet him. And lo and behold, the first thing out the door was his only daughter. And what does Jephthah do? He sinfully keeps his sinful vow. And we see other things. For example, uh, the, the blessing by Isaac Uh, Not the proper blessing to Esau, but to Jacob and other other instances that we see this. And what this is a result of, it's a result of God's people making a foolish vow or a foolish oath. And then once they realize that the vow was foolish, they go on and keep the foolish vow. Instead of doing what God had said to do in Leviticus chapter 5. When God says, if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good or any sort of rash oath that people swear and it's hidden from him, when he comes to know it, when he realizes his guilt, then he confesses it and brings a sacrifice for forgiveness. In other words, what Herod should have done upon making such a foolish vow as this and realizing what this foolish vow really was, what he should have done was to say, I'm sorry. I'm not keeping such a vow as that. I know I said I'd do it. I know I said, ask me of anything, but I'm not giving you that because that would be sinful. That's what he should have done. Now, why do we go through all this? We go through all of this because I feel like it's probably a fair statement to say that all the Christians in the room, you have probably found yourself at one point or another in a similar position in which you have given your word to do something. You've told somebody you'll do something. You've told somebody you'll... Uh, uh, Maybe play on a certain sports team, only to find out later that that sports team is going to play a lot of games on Sunday mornings. Or you've given your word to go with a friend to a certain party, only to find out that the party is a bachelor party, in which there's going to be a lot of activities taking place that you should not be at. And you found yourself in that position where you've given someone your word only to find out later that keeping your word will require of you more sin. And we've all sort of found ourselves in that quandary, and the quandary is, what do you do? Because we know that God says to us that we are to be people of our word, we're to be people of truth, because God is a God of His word. However, the Scriptures teach us that when we find ourselves having taken a vow foolishly, having sworn to something, having given our word to something and then maybe we didn't think it through properly or maybe we find out something that we didn't know up front and that changes the picture and now to keep our word will be something unwise or perhaps even sinful, then the Bible says, to the glory of God, break your word. To the glory of God, break your word. Do not let your oath or your vow require of you yet another sin as does Herod. To the glory of God, say to that person, look, I'm sorry, I know I gave you my word. I know I said I would play on this team, but I didn't know that you you guys are going to require me, your schedule is going to require me to miss a lot of the gatherings of God's people. I can't do that. Or I know I told you I would do this thing for you. Or I know I told you I would buy you this thing or give you this gift or whatever it may be. But now I've thought about it or God has shown me this or now I've learned that. And so to the glory of God, I'm going to violate my word. I'm going to break my word. And I ask you to forgive me of that, but I'm not going to sin again. That's what the Christian should do. Do we really think, do you really have such a picture of God in our mind that we would think that God would look down upon one of his children who made a foolish vow that required them to sin? And then learning of that, they go ahead and commit the sin so that they don't break their word. Do we really think that God's going to look down upon that and say, boy, they just make me so proud. They just kept their word. Now, now I know that they sinned in this other way, but they kept their word. Do we really think that God thinks like that? Of course not. So this is an illustration for us that shows us something that's actually quite practical because all of us will find ourselves in those situations in which we have told someone something and then we have learned more about it or thought more about it or maybe God has shown us something in which we now say, that would really be unwise. That might even be sinful for me. And so God provides the way of escape because you know, God will never place any of His children into a situation in which you have to sin. You know that? God will never allow any of His children to be in a situation where you say, I've got no way out of this except to sin. I either sin on the right hand or I sin on the left hand, but I got to sin one way or another to get out of this. I've got no other option. God doesn't present us with that. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says to us, every temptation comes with it a way of escape. And by way of escape, what that means is a godly way of escape. And so God will never allow us to be in a situation in which we have either unknowingly put ourselves in a position or unwisely put ourselves in a position where either we've got to sin by breaking our word or sin by following through with our word. Instead, God will look at that situation and He will say, yes, you were foolish in entering the situation or you were just ignorant. You didn't know. You didn't understand. But either way, the godly way out is to say, to stand up, to own it, say, I took this oath foolishly I gave you my word foolishly. Now I've reconsidered it. I've prayed about it. Now I'm not going to keep that word because that would require sin of me. Herod doesn't do that.